This is The Soul's Intent with author, psychologist, and spiritual teacher, Ernie Vecchio. The Soul's Intent is a show that boldly claims that it can help reveal where you are on the spiritual path. Learn how there is a physical place of love, truth, and freedom. Listen, and in an instant, learn that moving to such a place is actually a choice. This is The Soul's Intent, and now here's your host, Ernie Vecchio. of existentialism we have two emotions uh, we have fear and we have love and all the negative emotions trickle down from fear and the positive emotions trickle down from love and so tonight we're going to be talking about the fear of being seen and the fear of never being seen which is an existential idea that when we're younger we have uh, the fear that if somebody would see us they would reject us and and point a finger at us and judge us and choose not to interact with us but then as we get older and we age we have this fear that nobody's going to see us at all and we just kind of wish somebody could see us and so tonight we're going to be talking about this idea that one has to rethink themselves and kind of reevaluate who they are to to be known by somebody else and without that kind of self-reflection then it's not possible Joining me tonight always, my co-host, Irma Francis. I'm so looking forward to this topic tonight. I mean, there's really nothing more important than, than being seen for who you are in your life. I think what I want the listeners to get out of the show tonight is the, that there's, um, there's, a, there's a process in this fear of being seen and, and the fear of never being seen that really ties to emotional intelligence. And, uh, and, and that you're really not going to be able to become emotionally mature or evolve emotionally unless you look inside yourself. And, of course, the whole premise of the soul's intent is this idea of the importance of having some internal connection to who you are. And if you don't bother to make that journey inward, then you're going to be stuck in the outside world. And this business of being seen or never being seen is a harder dilemma to solve. So what came up tonight, um, <clears throat> sitting with this topic, I was thinking, of course, you know, if if we do start out in that, that place of, um, or we live a big part of our life in that place of fear, rejection, um, shame, or indifference, being being afraid that we're going to experience that thing, those things, it depends on um, our beginnings we expect to get that same kind of treatment from others. So it's almost like our beginning sets the stage for um, living our lives in that place of fear until and if yeah. we start to do that self-reflection. Well, when you consider that when we're younger, it's typically about attention getting. You know, How much attention are we going to get? What kind of attention are we going to get? What kind of behavior are we going to, to do that will draw attention? And then we break it down is whether or not it worked and then try to figure out as we're sorting through the experience what, what was positive experience and what was not positive. And, uh, and then if it's positive, we tend to store that away and use it again. If it's attention that doesn't be positive, then we, then we can check ourselves and check the behavior. But the, the idea here is, is that and the reason that I want to talk about this tonight is, is that uh, when you talk about emotional intelligence, there's, there's really two components that, that build emotional intelligence, and that is self-awareness and regulation, self-regulation. So what we're, what we're doing with our, with our attention getting is trying to become self-aware. 
But what we're also trying to do is experiment with our emotions and get some kind mm-hmm. of sense of, um, of what our strengths and our weaknesses are, what our drives are, what our values and our goals are, and, and look at how that impacts the people around us. You can see how in the earlier years we're just kind of groping, trying to figure out how to sort out those emotions, both positive and, and, and scary ones, the negative ones as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize that, that self-awareness uh, is one of the key ingredients to achieve self-regulation. If you don't kind of understand your emotions, then you're at the mercy of those emotions at some point. I'm also thinking, you know, if you're raised in a family by by parents who are coming from a place of love, I don't think you really have to struggle um, for attention. It's just given to you. Well, and, yeah. and I and I think that's a good point. If you're if you are in an environment where love is easy, then you're going to not have as much pain involved in the in the in the experimentation. So, so, but once you leave home and you go into public school, and you begin to interact with your peers and begin to interact with your coaches and your teachers and all those different kinds of adults, then it's a different kind of experience with love. Because mm-hmm. love takes on now, takes on the quality of affirmation. At some point, and, and, and kids outgrow that. At some point, when kids hit uh, pre-adolescence, you know, they, they they tend to look at their moms and, and dads and say, you know, I know what you think and feel. Now I'm going to go form my own opinion, but I'm also going to look outside myself for affirmation from others. And uh, so, if you come from a family that's loving and supportive. What do you find out when you go out into the world? Does the world tend to to mirror that? Well, yeah, a lot of times, of of course not, because most of us are entering into a world that is based on um, moral values. So there is a right and wrong way to be according to to morality. You know, bounce off of that, and you don't have to go through that extreme struggle. And I do realize that, that most of us, do have to go through that. A lot of us are not born into yeah. um, families that are are loving and yeah. But I think I think the point is is that 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 concept of love and fear is is that that if you don't have fear at home, you're going to have fear at school. If you don't mm-hmm. have fear at school, you're going to have fear in the culture. So so mm-hmm. my point is, yeah. you still have to res- you still have to resolve the idea of love and fear, and and it really is experimental. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. that's the reason that it that it that it starts out with with the fear of being seen because I know my mom and my dad love me or I know that my caretakers love me but what about the rest of the world you know and mm-hmm. how come it's harder at school how come it's harder at school to get affirmation than it is at home or how come it's harder in the culture to get affirmation and so so this business of being able to um, to be seen. A developmental process, and to not be afraid mm-hmm. of being seen. And so, I, I, mm-hmm. I agree with you that if you come from a foundation where it's easy at home, it, it's going to give you a stronger uh, or a thicker skin, if you will, for how difficult it might be in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. But but if you look at the majority, if you look at the majority of folks, they don't they don't have that. They have a they have an off balance. 
kind of dynamic. They might have a, a mother that loves them, but a dad that's indifferent or a, or a, yeah. or a dad that loves them and, and a mom who's indifferent uh, because, mm-hmm. because mom's love and dad's love are not the same animal and how you get that and how you get that affirmation is not the same animal. So, so I think the point is, is that that, that has to be played out. It has to be experimented with, and it has to be embraced. And again, it's not possible without self-awareness. It's not possible without some level of, uh, of reflection, uh, mm-hmm. because we're all going to we're, we're all going to experience uh, the problem of trying to understand our emotions and try to gain some skill in being able to control or redirect emotions that are disruptive and impulses that cause us to have to change or do something that's outside our comfort zones. So I, I was also curious in, in what you wrote, visibility means someone can actually recognize or rethink who we are. So I was curious, how are you defining that? What, what, what does that actually mean? Uh, what that implies is what I said a minute ago, that, that when we leave our, the, the safety of our home, and that's assuming that it's safe, and the security of our home, and we go into the world, uh, we now have a whole different set of rules, a whole different set of, of right and wrong and values. And, and so when the, when the teenager says, I know what my parents think and feel, now I want to find out what the rest of, of the world thinks and feels, we have to literally start from scratch a little bit and, or, or start over because we have to begin to take on the the acting that comes with the developmental ego, which is how do I fit in? How do I, how do I get along? How do I relate interpersonally? All those different kinds of things. And so we really want to hear the thoughts uh, of others. We want to hear the opinions of others. And, of course, we don't want the negative opinions or the negative thoughts, but that comes with it, you see. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and so when I say rethinking and the, the concept of, for somebody to see you is it's, it's trial and error. It's, uh, it's trying to figure out uh, where integrity is in these mm-hmm. interactions because, mm-hmm. because what you, what, what you take out into the world in this business of integrity is becoming real clear on who you are and who you and, and who you think you are. And if, whether or not those two things are congruent and then, then when you interact with the world around you, does it jive with your thoughts of yourself, and uh, and it's hard to see your own reflection. Very hard mm. to see your own reflection. Mm. So we, and so we, and so we tend to look to others for that assessment. That's what I meant by that. Yeah, and that's where the title "self abuse" as an outward fear of being seen and abandoned, because that uh, there is that those phases that we go through where we are looking towards others and seeing, you know, are we getting acceptance, affirmation, and if not, why not? And so there's like this push-pull back and forth um, that that uh, most of us go through. Well, and what and what comes with that, of course, is confidence. You know, it's kind of like the kind of like the kid that throws the the ice skates over their shoulder, and you say, you know, hey Ricky, what what are the skates for? He says, well, I'm I'm going to be an ice skater, and you look at him and say, well, you you got to kind of put them on your feet and have to go ice skating before you're going to be an ice <laughs> skater. Uh, you can't just say it; you have to go do it. Well, I think part part of what happens in this business of, of the fear of being seen and the fear of being rejected is you have to play with that, have the courage to play with that, and then rethink what what you get back as far as feedback. Uh, 
because uh, I think I told you once when we were talking on the phone that the, that the most powerful reinforcer on the planet, uh, people don't realize this, is in slot machines, mm-hmm. uh, like at the like gambling casino. And the reason that the slot machines are so popular and a lot of people play them in casinos around the world is they're built on the reinforcement schedule of random variable intermittent reinforcement. This is how we play with love initially. Dependent upon how love was at home, how easy it was to get and how easy the affirmation was to get was how much we go out and actually gamble with that in the world. If at home it's consistent, it's not random and variable and intermittent, when you go out into the world, it's, it's, it tends to be that. And so a lot of people work uphill for acceptance. They mm-hmm. work uphill for affirmation. And, they, and then they value themselves according to how successful they are at that particular, in, in that particular approach. And, and it's all really to try to gain some confidence that my thoughts and my feelings are congruent with the way the world's responding to me. What all of us do, unfortunately, and, and we don't stop doing it sometimes for the rest of our lives, is we act one way when we feel another. You see, mm. we, we, we don't always behave congruently with what we're feeling. And, and instead what we do is we act according to the demands of the environment around us, which may be totally in conflict with what we feel internally, you see. And yeah. so, so gaining confidence in one's own capacity to communicate with the world, you know, the more that you reflect on your strengths and your weaknesses as you're playing that, that particular interpersonal game depends upon really the formation of self-worth and self-esteem. We all start out, no matter how much self-esteem and self-worth you thought you got at home, you're starting over when you enter into the world because mm-hmm. now you put that in you put that in the lap of the people around you in the external. And you can see that if you externalize that too much, then you're at the mercy of the external. If you're right. constantly looking outside yourself for, to be affirmed and you have nothing internally that says I'm okay, then you're looking for your okayness somewhere else. And that's the risk. And we've all done it. At some level in our lives, we've all done it. And I, I think the time it hits the hardest is in middle school. Because mm-hmm. middle school is, is when hormones kick in, and around 11, 12, 13 years of age for boys and girls. And with those hormones come emotions. And with those emotions mm-hmm. come confusion. And yeah. so junior, junior high school is when that really hits and hits hard. And so how we have um, resolved some of these issues of, uh, of reflection and getting some sense of our own internal integrity uh, de- determines on how much confidence we gain and how much self-esteem and self-worth we accumulate. And we've got a self-esteem, self-worth issue in the culture. It's a massive problem in the culture. Well, yeah, it is. It is it, it, definitely because there's so much in our culture that um, oh, is focused on creating an image an image that fits with what is um, considered to be ideal by the culture that we live in. And as long as we're trying to fit an image, we are not, (laughs) we're not, that's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with being authentic. And so that's the rethinking of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I thought, I thought about myself one way, or I think about myself one way at home and around my family, I think about myself and the world totally differently. 
we see. Mm-hmm. That's the, and, if there, and, and if there's a major incongruence between what I'm experiencing at home and what I'm experiencing in the world, that chases some kids back home. They don't want to be in yeah. the world. Right. Uh, because the, because the world is harsh and the world is not fair and the world is unkind and all those things. So, so that's that's why this capacity of having some internal ground of which you know is true about yourself uh, needs to begin in adolescence. If you don't if you don't have that ground kind of uh, firmed up by the time you hit young adulthood, then you're stuck with those methods and those strategies, whatever they were. And mm-hmm. if you don't have a, uh, you know, some some kind of ground in that, and that's and that's part of the problem, which is again the whole reason for the soul's intent is is that I'm trying to uh, encourage uh, people to rethink this business of the importance of having some internal life, um, yeah. reinstating yeah. the reinstating the heart as the compass, and realizing that the ego is is not the compass. Uh, these are, this is the language of what it is that I teach. And something I've, I've heard you say before, and um, and I experienced that um, as well at a young age, is um, if you aren't born into a family that's, that's loving and acknowledges you and gives you the loving attention, you know something's really off. So something within you, something within me, recognized there's a there's a bigger truth than the one I was born into, and so um, you went after that. You 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 recognize something at a young age that it might take other people that um, a longer time to to make it make that recognition. Sometimes harshness yeah. can um, yeah push you into that recognition a lot a lot earlier, a lot younger. And so you, you go yeah. after what that, that bigger truth is. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. uh, one, one of the things that uh, I, I want to reinforce tonight is, is that, that people remember the benefit of self-reflection, that, that the benefits are, are too great to really pass up because when you, when you self-reflect, you're better utilizing your internal time. Because if you're not self-reflecting, then what do you think you're doing if you're not self-reflecting? You're imagining. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think I somewhere I, I forget what author said this, but the worst use of imagination is worry. So if you're not mm-hmm. rethinking, well, you know. if you're not rethinking who you are through the process of self-reflection and getting the benefit of the time that you're spending doing that, then you're off in your imagination. And in your mm-hmm. imagination, uh, if you make up, for example, that I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough or I'm not fast enough, I'm an athlete, or if I'm, if I'm a girl, I'm not pretty enough, you go off in your imagination and pretty soon you're not rethinking yourself. Now you are re-identifying yourself. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you, take on the, you take on the identity of the thoughts that, you, that you're imagining to be true, you see. And without self-reflection you're not going to know what's true and what isn't. And, uh, mm-hmm. and this is why mom is, moms and dads kind of lose a hold on their kids around middle school because what, whatever their self-esteem is when they leave home, they now have to go into the world with it, whatever it is, and in the world test it all the time. It's constantly testing our sense of worth and our sense of esteem and our sense of value. And uh, we've gotten so far 
on the on the the end of, of the continuum where we just reinforce kids so much that they now they expect reinforcement all the time, <laughs> you know, uh, reinforcement for every single thing that they do, and life is not always reinforcement. Life right, is sometimes right. the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we can create narcissists that way. I mean, if you, if you just treat people like everything is perfectly fine and they don't really have to work for anything and everything gets acknowledged, they could become very narcissistic from that. I would I would think. Well, yeah, and that's and that's literally what I'm I'm sharing with the public in the work that I've done is is that uh that's exactly what has happened. We've moved from a guilt kind of oriented culture where the compensation for guilt was religiosity and and there was a right and a wrong way to be and that was it to a shame-based culture which is really uh, self-loathing and self-hatred and the compensation for that is narcissism so 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 we're not doing self-reflection what we're doing is self-absorption we're becoming self-absorbed yeah right. and so we do have we we do have two or three generations of young people that are absolutely self-absorbed, mm-hmm. but but I think that that and, and that's where people get confused that they think self-reflection is egoic, mm-hmm. not, not egoic to sit and reflect. It it is no more than introspection uh, would be uh, or contemplation. These are not self-absorbed kinds of behaviors. Instead, they are stepping outside the self that I think I am, observing the self that I think I am, and see how incongruent it is for what I feel I am. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, in, and somewhere in the feeling lies the truth. What I feel about mm-hmm. myself is really different than what I think about myself. And, and so it's really kind of putting us back into the heart and, and, and putting us in a compassionate place because in that place of witness, which is really the soul's perspective, we can forgive uh, ourselves for our weaknesses and we can compliment ourselves for our strengths, but do it from a, uh, a loving, compassionate place rather than an egoic place. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, that's, so, it, it, so we, we begin to shift in this business of, uh, of reflection to who's looking at me, <laughs> what's looking at me, uh, who or what is discerning how I am, and mm-hmm. which which of which of those uh, observers do I want to identify with? And so, mm-hmm. what tends to happen just by habit and and conditioning is we tend to go to the ego's assessment of how we're doing. We go to mm-hmm. the ego's judgment. And then we and then we look to another person and say, "What do you think?" They're answering from their ego. I think I told you that uh, I went probably through most of my life before I had somebody say to me, you're really good at what you do. <laughs> and then when they said it to me, it was kind of like, oh, come on, you know, come on, you're making me uncomfortable. That isn't true. You know? <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> I couldn't even take the compliment. I couldn't even take the compliment. And so that, that tells you that, that we imagine ourselves one way, no matter how somebody sees us, we, we hold on to that imagination of deformity, that there's something wrong with me. And, and, that, and we hold on to it because we were told there was something wrong with us or mm-hmm. it was reinforced in some way. 
And, right. and so we foul that away as an, as an identification, which then feeds the fear of being seen. Mm-hmm. It's like letting, mm-hmm. almost like it's almost like letting your guard down, the, letting down the wall, uh, so somebody can actually see. Um, I've never met anybody who is really, really confident, who still doesn't have insecurities. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have insecurities of some level, and uh, but we do a good job of hiding them uh, until we decide to let somebody see them. Yeah, and right. that. That, yeah, and so, and so what, what ends up happening, Irma, is as we get older, we get less and less afraid of being transparent. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when we're younger, we spend, we, we spend a great deal of energy to not be transparent. And, uh, right. and that, that, really is, that really is the core of what, of a, what a, a panic attack is. I mean, people that have panic aren't just having an anxiety attack. They're having the fear of being seen. Right, and, right. And the, I've always, yeah. I've always wondered if if panic attacks are maybe like a, a good sign, a good sign that you know a person is is trying to to break through. Maybe you know not yeah. consciously, but yeah. Well, it's only a, it's it's only a good sign if they're doing healthy self reflection. If they're not doing healthy mm-hmm. self reflection, then then it's reinforcement that they need to stay. Uh, behind the veil, they need to stay behind that wall. But what panic tends to be is, I, I use the example a lot of times when, when, I'm, when I'm counseling folks that, that if you had a hamster wheel inside your stomach and there's a hamster on the wheel that's constantly running and spinning the wheel, and the, in the, in the, the quicker the wheel turns, uh, the more anxiety you're feeling, people that have panic are afraid somebody can see the hamster. Mm. And so mm. that that's why they tend that's why they tend to stay away from large crowds and they don't go out in public because they're afraid somebody can see right through them that they are transparent that they're afraid of being afraid. And so that and and if you and then if that gets reinforced it becomes a phobia. And that's really what panic mm-hmm. attack is. It's a, it's a form of it's a form of phobia. And so this business mm-hmm. of, of of the fear of being seen is a real developmental issue. Uh, but we don't really get our uh, get our teeth into it until we hit around midlife, and then as we get around midlife, we begin to say, you know what? I'm not going to spend this energy anymore to hide. Mm-hmm. I'm, instead, what, I, what I'm going to attempt to do is to is to just be and and see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may, so to speak. And uh, it, but that's not that's not possible in midlife unless you're doing some internal work, unless you're doing some form of self-reflection. And right. and, and then right. and then having and then having a decent mirror to bounce it off of. And this really is what counselors and life coaches and mentors are supposed to be, which is a healthy mirror. So mm-hmm. we're looking uh, we're looking for these mirrors in the world all the time. And we start we start looking for them as soon as we walk away from mom and dad. As soon as we walk away from our family dynamic, we go out into the world and try to find mirrors that we feel comfortable enough to stand in front of. Right. And if we feel comfortable, and if we feel comfortable, we call that person friend. <laughs> and, uh, and and for all the ones we don't feel comfortable with, we we don't call friends, right? Right. And uh, right. and so. And so I think it's important to understand that uh, 
the reason that we do spiritual work in general is because we cannot see our own reflection. And we need people for that process until we get a little bit older. Then we go, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. If all I'm finding are cracked mirrors in the world, then I have to fix my own mirror first and stand in front of the mirror that is me, you see. Yeah. And uh, so, we, so we, move, we move from an external mirror to an internal mirror and then begin to do what self-reflection technically is. Real mm-hmm. clean self-reflection, real clean self-reflection is not scary. It's not threatening. It's just reflecting. Right. It's, it, it's, it's looking at oneself in a, in a non-judgmental kind of way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I know for myself at a young age, I did a lot of self-reflection. I didn't necessarily <laughs> know that that's what I was doing, but I wrote a lot of poetry and the poetry was based on, this is how I experience the world. No matter what's happening around me or how people are telling me I should experience the world, this is how I truly experience the world. So I started writing poetry because I just somehow intuitively knew like the, the importance of that um, to and in that poet, in writing that poetry, there was self-reflection. This is how I am experiencing life, and so it was a way of validating what was true for me, no matter what was happening around me. So I'm just curious how can we, how can people that have children help their children in self-reflection, or is that even possible? Can can children self-reflect? Young children. Yeah, yeah, they. Yeah, they can. It's not. It's not as sophisticated, of course, as we get older. This business of self-reflection. I think. I think the first thing you want to make sure is that, as we said earlier, that it's not self-absorption. It's not focused just on the self. That's narcissism to do that. It's healthy. In fact, it's a critical component of any kind of positive change that one makes in their life. And so, what you teach your child, and really what you need to know as an adult, you cannot reach any goal in your life without knowledge of where you are right now. In other words, you have to have a sense of your current, of your current location. Um, I've, I've asked people uh, on a one to 10 scale with 10 being as great as they could feel about themselves as one being as low as it gets, where would they place themselves on that one to 10 scale? And somebody might say, well, I'm a four. And then I'll say, well, is that a good day or a bad day? And they'll say, well, that's probably a bad day. A good day would be a six. I said, okay, so four plus six is 10. Two divided to 10 is a five. So you're saying that on this business of self-esteem and so forth, you're on the fence. You're at that five, six level. And then I go, well, you do know those numbers are made up, right? <laughs> those numbers are not real. Mm-hmm. They're made up numbers. And I said, so what you're telling me is that if you went up in the attic of the house that you were raised in, and your parents are now long gone and they're deceased, and you find a trunk that has all of the pictures of your childhood, and the bottom of the trunk is a plaque, and it says, to our son Steve, who we love very much, the number four. <laughs> that, that's, better than ze- that's still better than zero, <laughs> because that's where I started. I started, I started with zero. I didn't have a four. And so my point, is, my, my point is, is that having a sense of where you are is very useful to have a sense then where you're going. And, uh, and so this is, the, this is the benefit of self-reflection. And so, and so the answer to your question about what parents can do with children is 
truly find out where they think they are on this mm-hmm. business of self-esteem. And then build from there. Don't just assume that because they have, they're on the cheerleading squad and they're making straight A's and they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they're popular at school, don't just assume because they have all those things that they have a healthy self-esteem because that's not true. They may oh, not. Right. Right. Yeah. A lot so, of times so, so, so people some... that fit in really well maybe are, don't necessarily have a good sense of self-esteem. Fitting in doesn't well, necessarily. Look, yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at look at all the actors and actresses in Hollywood. I mean, every one of them have a very powerful need to be seen. Right. And they have a very powerful need to be in front of people for that affirmation of visibility, you see. And many of them are more comfortable uh, on the stage and being seen than they are off the stage. I, I think I saw an article today on Carrie Underwood, and they were – I forget – uh, she was doing an interview for uh, some journal or something, and she said that uh, if people saw me in real life, she said, I'm actually really very boring. She said, I don't have, you know, they see me as Carrie Underwood, this incredible singer and all this and all these awards and stuff. She says, but I'm just Carrie. I'm not, you know, <laughs> and she said, I'm afraid if people actually would see me the way I really am, I'm actually quite boring. <laughs> and, and so that's a good example. Here, here's somebody. Here's somebody that's at the top of the game in, in her in her profession, but says that if you saw me in my real identity, my real identity is quite simple and mundane and boring. And so that's a good example that that we that we that we're all that, that we're all walking around with some need of affirmation for who we are and how we are in the world. And most of us are quite external in how we go about it. Uh, to, to, I mean, you know, getting that affirmation, and um, and in fact, we we even go as far in the spiritual community to say that uh, I'm I'm seeking like-minded people. That's a mm-hmm. phrase we use a lot in the spiritual community, right? But we're not really looking for like-minded people. We're looking for people that have the same hearts that we have, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. totally different. I don't want um, I don't want to meet that somebody is that has totally different. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to meet somebody who's got my mind. I want to meet somebody who's got my heart. And so, and so that's what we really want when we're out in the world trying to connect is people that are coming from an integrious place and coming from a heart-centered place so we too can do the same with some degree yeah. of security and safety. Yeah, and, uh, but instead what we do is we, we kind of act our way through those experiences until we find out if we can let our guard down and let the wall down and trust and let somebody in uh, because we don't know what's going to happen, you see. If we, if, if we externalize uh, our need for affirmation too much and we don't get back the feedback that we need, that's how it becomes self-abusive. Or if we put ourselves out into the world and in some, with some desire to be seen uh, and we make consolations we allow behavior. We allow how people treat us, which may be harsh. We allow people to do all kinds of things to us just for affirmation. This mm-hmm. is really the core of what uh, this is. The, this is the core of abusive relationships. A lot of people mm-hmm. that are that are trapped in relationships really they, they have the fear they have the fear of leaving and the fear of staying. 
because they don't know what to do. They're afraid to leave and afraid to stay, so they're stuck in that, right. in that fear. And that's and that's how it becomes self-abusive. We were talking the other day about codependency and enmeshment. That's really what that is as well. Those are, those, those are conditions that are set up by this internal need to be seen and recognized right. and, and or uh, the fear of being seen for, for the fear of further abuse and further rejection. So those earlier stages of, of how we're trying to sort that out, this business of, uh, of being seen or not being seen, is a developmental process that absolutely has to be grounded in an internal, uh, reflective way that is healthy, and we typically we're not taught how to do that. And that is the, really the core of what the soul's intent is about. I mean, the soul's intent mm-hmm. is that you, be fully, that you be fully embodied and fully in the incarnation that is you, and you cannot be that fully incarnate person if you're constantly trying to be what other people think you should be, or mm-hmm. if you're trying, or if you set, some, or, or if you set set some standard for yourself that you cannot meet because mm-hmm. you need to be accepted. It's all the right. same stuff. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or if you're in that you know emotionally kind of charged place where you're reacting to people and things around you and you have never learned how to do that um, self-regulation, um, you, you can't really get to that, that heart place. You can't get to the feeling place because you're in emotional um, charge, reacting. And so you can't get to the place of, of uh, feeling, and you need to be in a feeling place to be in your body, to be fully, to, you know, to um, have a sense of, of your soul being fully incarnated in, in, uh, in your physical form. I would think, mm-hmm. I would think that emotional charge has, has a, a big part to play and not knowing maybe how to to self-regulate to reach the heart. The heart is the place of, of feeling and without that we can't arrive. Yes, yes. Well, and I think I, think I need to, to reinforce there that, that you said react, emotionally react. Emotions don't react. They reenact. So the words emotions right. become yeah they become a deja vu experience of a previous uh, thought and feeling that formed an idea of who we think we are. And so yeah. uh, um, being, yeah. being, a, being able to make the distinction between feeling and emoting is also part of that self awareness. I think I think one thing that I want to say about this business of self awareness is that we that we need to keep in mind is in in, in order for positive change to occur. Uh, we have to find a, a balance between how much negativity we experience in order for change to happen because we don't want to become overwhelmed or paralyzed by the magnitude of our shortcomings, so to speak, and we don't want to be overwhelmed by the negativity. So we've got to strike a balance with how much of that we can take and how much of that we subject ourselves to. It's that idea of constructive criticism. Well, it's only constructive if it's, if it's useful. If it's not useful in some way, then it's just criticism. And so mm-hmm. this is the other thing that we're doing. This is the thing that we're doing in the sphere of being seen is we're all seeking at some level feedback from the outside world 
for some kind of an idea of how we appear and how we sound and how we relate and if we're good enough and all those things. But if it starts being destructive, if it just starts to feel like criticism and it isn't growing us in some way, then we have to reevaluate that. So, so that's, that's a very important point. And the other thing is to make the distinction between what I said before about, about self-reflection and self-absorption, that we don't want to think that self-reflecting is being absorbed because when you're reflecting, and this is probably a good way to say it, when you're reflecting, you're really being conscious of who you are in relationship to who you think you are. When you're self-absorbed, you're looking through the lens of the ego. And so Mm -hmm. since the ego can't since the ego can't see itself, it can't step back, at least until it awakens, it can't step back and see itself. Um, mm-hmm. And so if that, make, if that makes sense. Uh, well, that, yeah, I think that, that's an important point, that the ego can't self-reflect. Yeah. 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 And so you want to do, and so you know, you know you're in the ego if in a moment of self-reflecting, one negative thought comes through, then you're not, you're not, looking at it from the from the soul's perspective as witness and you're certainly not looking at it through the lens of the heart which is compassion you're looking at it just purely through the ego and so mm-hmm. being able to, to be, being able to tell what lens you're looking through and, and again this is the core of what the soul's intent is teaching is is that that in this business of self-reflection uh, uh, be very careful what lens you're using as you're looking at yourself and in the mm-hmm. same way, also be careful. Be careful what lens you're using when you're choosing mirrors. If you're mm-hmm. using your ego, choose. If you're using your ego to choose other mirrors, then you're probably picking an ego. I mean, a mirror that is predominantly ego. If you're using your heart as a lens, you're probably going to have a better chance at finding a mirror that is also heart-centered as you are in your, in your choosing. And so if, if you can see the significance of that, that uh, it's almost like taking off a pair of glasses, it's one prescription, you know, so the ego has one prescription, which is hindsight's twenty twenty. The heart has one prescription, which is this is true and this is false. Mm. And the soul has one prescription that is just be who you are. <laughs> and, and so you're moving <laughs> through those lenses you're moving through those lenses as you're doing the reflecting. And look mm-hmm. how much clearer your vision is when you realize that you have two or three different lenses to, to choose from. And, it, and mm-hmm. you can see that the healthier, the healthier lens for any kind of reflection is, is from the soul's perspective as observer or from the heart's perspective uh, with empathy and compassion. So All those right. are the two lenses that you, want to, that you really want to use. The ego is not the lens. It should never be the lens. It's just an adaptive function. It's, it's, it's the part of you that's worried about fitting in. It's the part of you oh, that's yeah. wounded. It's the part of you yeah, that's going to act its way through until it makes it. That's what the ego is going to do. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, as we develop through the different development uh, stages in, in life and in those containers that, that you talk about, and I think you've also talked about getting to a place where there, there is no container, and, and that would be that that place of being transparent. I, I would think. Mm-hmm. 
I would think. Mm-hmm. But then I'm curious. Yeah, well, you do end your your um your writing for the show tonight that um we kind of then move into this place of um wishing that that somebody could see us. Kind of hoping that yeah. that somebody could see us. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. A young person's yeah. mm-hmm. not going to have that that angst at quite the level because they haven't lived enough life yet. <laughs> but uh, but as we get older, we become less and less tolerant of misperceptions of who we are. I, I know in my own case, and you and I have talked about this off the air, that I know in my own case I had to say many times to people uh, as they would be evaluating me, I'd say, no, that's not me. And then they would evaluate mm-hmm. me again and say, no, that's, that, that's not me either. <laughs> and, and so mm-hmm. and then finally one day somebody, somebody said to me, well, Ernie, how do you know that this is not you? I said, well, because I'm an expert on me. <laughs> and yeah, not exactly. Being an expert on me. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, and, 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 you, and that's what happens, I think, to this business of I wish somebody could see me. Now that we've spent our lives becoming an expert on the fear of being seen, we shift to now I got to become an expert on how to be seen mm-hmm. and and really then only associate and only interact with those people that can see me and or not be concerned any longer for the ones that can't because we spent mm-hmm. the first half of our lives struggling, you know, struggling with that. And with that struggle came all that self-abuse and all that guilt and all that shame that we all struggle through that, uh, that, um, that, that we finally get to a place in midlife and further that we're just not going to make the consolations anymore and we're not going to settle for being invisible. So we try to go out in the world and be seen. That's, uh, that's right. the key. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And I always, I mean, and, and it came up again as I was, you know, contemplating the, the show tonight, that line um, in Avatar, that I see you means I love you, which is, is that's the truth. Mm-hmm. That is the truth. Eventually, that is the truth, yeah. That's what we hope for. That I see you means I love you. That's what we look for. Yeah. yeah, I mean that is, the, and that, and that's not, and that's not a romantic. Um, uh, it sounds romantic, but it isn't a romantic idea that we have to resolve the existential dilemma of invisibility. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we don't, if we don't resolve it, we never arrive. You know, I, I can speak from, I can speak for shame. That shame is invisible. It doesn't even exist. If it doesn't have a set of eyes across the table that says "I see you," shame is mm-hmm. shame is, is is plagued with that plagued with that problem of visibility, uh, and and then and then plus also when somebody says "I see you," it feels icky, <laughs> it feels foreign, you know, because it's like clearly if you really knew me, you wouldn't feel that way. Is what shame would say. If you really knew me, you probably wouldn't feel that way, and uh, and so. Sadly, we carry that our whole lives, depending upon how big of a wound we have in the in the making of of guilt and shame. Yeah. Yeah, and guilt would be played out uh, in a, in a different way, but still, it's it's not getting to that place of arrival and um, being transparent. Well, guilty people uh, guilty people don't want to make mistakes. You know, uh, where where mm-hmm. shame thinks it is a mistake, guilty people are mm-hmm. focused on not making mistakes and so they they try not to make mistakes or they try to learn from their past mistakes 
so they don't have to be guilty anymore. <laughs> so guilt has mm-hmm. a totally different approach. Yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, well, the, the one thing I want to say in closing about this, Irma, because we're down to like four minutes left in the show, I think, uh, mm-hmm. is that, that, that there's, there's much for us to learn about uh, being, being you know, consciously engaged in self-reflection. And whether you're a Buddhist and you're engaged in um, meditation or you're an addict who's going to an AA meeting or you're a philosopher of enlightenment or whatever, I think that the point is is that being aware of ourselves is an essential part of self-improvement. We call it consciousness in the the spiritual movement. It's really self-awareness. And uh, I, I said in one of my writings somewhere that we shift from being conscientious to a place of consciousness. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine that in that fear, in that fear of being seen, we're quite conscientious. In fact, we're self-conscious uh, uh, in, in that in that conscientious phase as we move into a place of consciousness. This is the point. So, so if you're going to uh, if you're going to progress in life, like I said earlier, uh, it's best to know where you are, uh, where you're starting from, uh, to achieve any goal or, or get any place in life. You have to know where you're located at this moment, and the the work I do tends to try to meet people where they are and give them a clear mm-hmm. idea of where that is. Thank you. For being a part of the soul's intent with author, psychologist, and spiritual teacher Ernie Vecchio, this is the show that can open your mind to things you never thought possible. While problems manifest psychospiritually, on a most essential level, there exists an energy component that provides the instructions for these fields to enter awareness. And the soul's intent is here to help you learn what these instructions are. Join us each week to learn how there is a physical place of love, truth, and freedom, and how in an instant learn that moving to such a place is actually a choice. 